Okay, so um, we are going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the great characters in Scripture and, uh, and how uh, their lives were radically changed by uh, encounters with angels um, and how those angels sort of uh, hijacked them from what they were normally doing uh, so that they could be a part of this great uh, nativity story that we've been enjoying. And I don't think I'm going to get through all of it today. I may. If I don't, then I'll finish it up next Sunday. So uh, I'm going to be talking about five major types of nativity characters and their faithfulness and how they have been hijacked. Now, maybe some of you know this. And by the way, let me just say this. I remember years ago when I was a youth minister in Lancaster, Ohio, that um, I was sort of towards the end of my tenure there. I'd been there for about seven years. And Dr. Riedel, who was a real mentor of mine, very, very bright guy, um, uh, really who, who, who invested a lot in me and, 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 and a lot of anything that is good that I know about running in a church, I learned from him. Uh, he was he was very good at that. And so as I was talking to him about what I might want to do after I got out of youth ministry, uh, he's, he said, well, he says, look, I, you ought to think about teaching. And um, and I and I at first I was kind of disappointed because, you know, I was relatively young and I wanted to like, uh, you know, take on the world and, you know, maybe solve world hunger or something like that. Um, and, and so I was, uh, at first I was a little disappointed by that, but then I, as I, as I have grown to know myself, um, I'm a teacher. And, uh, and, and so I, I love that and I've embraced that. And so today is going to be sort of a teaching kind of uh, sermon. I've, I've had some people over the years who uh, sometimes get frustrated at my teaching. They want me to be more of a preacher. And maybe you want me to be more of a preacher, but I can't be that for you today. I'm going to teach you about these five major characters and their impact and how it applies to our life and, and, and what we maybe ought to do about that. So um, the first thing I want to say to you is, is that, you know, the whole Advent season is about the nativity. It's about the birth or the arrival of Jesus Christ. And... Um, and so the nativity scene then is the scene about the birth of Jesus and all of the characters that were involved in that. And one of the major characters that were involved in that on a regular basis were these angels, these messengers from God. Um, and uh, in particular, Gabriel uh, was probably the primary angel who was involved in all of these encounters. Gabriel was an archangel. He was, um, he was on par with other archangels like Michael, and probably on par with other archangels like Satan. So, you know, you can have good angels and you can have bad angels. Uh, Gabriel was a good angel. Michael was a good angel. Satan was a bad angel. And so, um, in these particular kinds of uh, encounters, uh, Gabriel described himself as one who stands in the presence of God. One who stands in the presence of God. Now, the five nativity characters that Gabriel probably encountered were Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and possibly the Magi. And, um, and so these five characters have a number of things in common, and they are these. Um, they implied faithfulness and piety, that all five of these characters were very pious. 
and I mean pious in a good way. I mean, we've, we've gotten, we use the word pious today in sort of in a patronizing sort of manner, but that's not really what pious meant. Pious meant holy. It meant good, it meant pure. That's what it meant. Uh, it's what it does mean. And so these were people, all five of these characters, Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and the Magi had, uh, I don't know why that's bouncing around like that, um, all, uh, all five of these characters had a piety to them that marked them as people that God wanted to use. And out of that piety, uh, they were faithful. They were very faithful. And so each of them responded in, uh, in uh, sort of faithfully per angelic appearance. So the angel came and he spoke to them. He said, this is what I want you to do. And instead of saying, no, I'm not going to do that, because nobody here ever says no to God, right? I've never said no to God. Have, have you ever said no to God? Have you ever been convicted and said, no, I don't care about this conviction? Well, these people responded, every one of them, uh, faithfully to what the angel wanted them to do. And each of them served a particular role, a very special role. And I want to say that by, by, you know, sort of by extraction or by amplification, that each of us serve a role. Everyone here, no one here is a mistake, regardless of what your parents said to you. You're not a mistake, okay? That you, you know, that you were, you were born uh, with a twinkle in God's eye. And that when He fashioned you in your mother's womb, He puts you in this place at this time to accomplish a particular purpose. Do you want to know why there's so much suffering today in the world, it's because the people who, uh, who do exist don't do what, they're so, what they exist for. The people who do exist don't live up to their calling. They're, they don't live according to their purpose. And so the things that they could be doing for people who need help, they choose not to do. So all of us here in this room, we have a unique purpose. God gave it to us. And each of these people in, these, in this five story had a unique purpose that God gave to them, and they fulfilled that purpose. And so they were a, a, a poignant part, they were a very important part of the, the nativity story. Um, and so uh, all of these roles should be found in our, in our lives as well. So every one of these five characters that I'm talking about probably applies to each of us in some way. And that's why I'm going to sort of go at this in this manner that, you know, one of the ways in which we give meaning to Advent and to the nativity stories by saying, not only, not, this isn't only what happened with Jesus and how he came about, but in this story here, in this matrix of smaller stories, out of that is meaning and meaning that applies to your life and to my life. Meaning that should speak and say, in what way can I be faithful that, you know, in the same kind of way that Mary was faithful? Or in the same kind of way that Zechariah was faithful? Or in the same way that the, the shepherds were faithful? Don't th shouldn't their faithfulness speak to my life as well when it comes to faithfulness? It should. And so I'm hopeful that we can sort of get to that. So each of these people represent a type of person that served in some special capacity, that promoted and advanced the presence of Christ within the world. And all five types should be manifested in the life of the Christian. And so as I go through each of these people, I'm going to be talking about a there and then. This is what was going on there and then. 
And then this is how their story, their life should apply to us in the here and now. There and then, this is what happened. Here and now, that's how that story should apply to us. This is how we gain meaning from their particular example in our life. And that through that, great faithfulness oftentimes results in great works for God. So uh, in, in, in each of these cases, uh, those five people sort of bucked the system. They did something different. And as a result of that, uh, their story endured. In the same way that Simeon bucked the system. Simeon, uh, you recall Simeon was sort of, uh, you know, he was a, a faithful man who worshiped the Lord in the temple every day. And so uh, God had told him that Jesus, that the Messiah would come during his lifetime. And so at the very end of his life, Simeon encountered the infant Jesus in the temple courts. And uh, in, in, in that, that, that time, in that place, in that history, in that context and culture, Simeon would, would have been under all kinds of pressure to believe in a different kind of Messiah, but he chose not to. He chose to believe in the biblical, the Old Testament biblical Messiah that God had promised him that was coming. And so when he did that, he encountered Jesus at the end of his life in the temple courts and he uttered among some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture. Words that endure to this day because he would not allow the world to change for him who the Messiah was going to be. And in the same way, these people, their stories speak and their stories endure. And I think this is a, again, by, by amplification, I think this is an important thing for all of us to, in what manner might our story endure beyond our life? How would your Christian story endure beyond the life that you've existed now? You know, one of the things I oftentimes do when, when, I, when I do a funeral service is I simply ask this question, uh, in what way was this person's life significant or meaningful? And so I oftentimes give the family three different questions. I think I can remember them off the top of my head. Uh, give me a funny story or anecdote that they are known for. Uh, what is something that they, that, they, uh, uh, that, they were, that they genuinely enjoyed doing and liked to do? And in what way was their life meaningful or significant? And so the family tells me, uh, you know, in what way their life was meaningful or significant. And we're able to talk about that during a funeral service. And we can honor that person's life in that way for those people who have come to hear the significance of that person's life. But some people live lives because they are faithful. And those lives, uh, the, the, the works that they've done with their life are more significant because of how faithful they were. And so the question for all of us is, in what way uh, was our life, was your life significant? So again, let's just sort of like this. Um, in, in their lives, they were open, and because of their piety, because of their faithfulness, they were open to hearing, um, they were open to hearing and receiving uh, a, an encounter with God through the angel Gabriel. They were open to that. Their hearts were warmed. They were, they were softened. They, could, they didn't have to fight through it. They heard this angel speak to them. And so they allowed their lives to be 
hijacked. When was the last time you or I were hijacked by God as a means for establishing His work? When was the last time your life was hijacked by God so that He could establish a work in your life, in your family, in your community, in your place of employment? Would you like to be hijacked by God? Don't you think it would be good to be ambushed by the Holy Spirit more than what we are? And maybe, maybe, maybe He tries to do that. But we lack the piety to hear it or to receive it. See, these five characters didn't lack the piety. They received it. They heard it. And it came into their heart and they responded in faith. I think that the, because God is omnipresent, that is to say he is everywhere at all times and in all places, I think that he is constantly speaking to us. But our hearts can become hardened. And when they become hardened, then that hijacking or that ambushing doesn't really happen as often or as powerfully as it as maybe it should, and as a, as a result, then, then our faithfulness is, is, uh, uh, is off by so many degrees, and so we can't be what we need to be to people in our life. Recently, I had a conversation with somebody. Uh, I, re- I received a phone call uh, that Sherry took as she passed it on to me about a young man who is about to be homeless, And, um, and this would be a terrible time to be homeless, wouldn't you agree? I don't think the young man's a Christian. But I don't think that homelessness is something that you deserve, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. So I mentioned to somebody in passing that, because I'm thinking through my head how we can help him as a church, and I mentioned something to someone in passing about that, and so, um, and, you know, I just mentioned about, you know, we were looking for a way to help this particular person. We were, you know, because I've talked to the landlord, I've talked to them, I try to do my homework on these kinds of things. And so I'm mentioning it to him. This person came back to me later and said, and there was some, some time in between those conversations. They said, that young man that needs help. I said, yeah. And you said that, that you were going to maybe try and give them $200. I said, yes. He said, I will cover that. Now, I didn't say that to that person. I did not say that to that person. So that, because I was hoping, you know, you sort of like you, we all have those conversations where you say something, you hope they read between the lines, you know, (laughs) and get the hidden message. That's not why I had that conversation. This was all the Holy Spirit speaking to this person. And so he was wonderfully hijacked by the Holy Spirit in response to this particular person's need. And do you know what I can do now? I can go to that young man who is not a Christian. He is not a believer. Of this I am certain. And I can say to him, a person in our church heard your story. They don't know who you are, but they heard your story. And because they felt compassion and cared, they gave of themselves $200 to help you pay your rent. Now, in a world where our church is always under attack, because we're bigoted, we don't care, we're hypocrites, we're all these things, right? 
I think that's a wonderful witness. Don't you agree? And so what I'm saying to you is, is that when we allow our lives to be hijacked, when our hearts are softened, when we're reading the word, when we're praying, when we're having constant fellowship, when we're in worship together and we can sing together and pray together and we can rub shoulders with each other, those things keep us soft. They make our hearts amenable to the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit does speak, then in a refreshing way, we can act and we can be a powerful witness for the Lord in our life today. So these are five people then that because they were the way they were, because they were faithful in how they understood scripture, because they were faithful in terms of how they lived their lives, then God used them and included them in the greatest story ever told in the history of humankind. Wouldn't you love to have your name as a part of the greatest story ever told in the history of humankind? I haven't met a woman yet that I know of who's a believer, who, who, who's had children, who said to me that they've often wondered how wonderful it would have been to have been selected by God to, give, to have given birth to the Son of God. Do any of you mothers relate to that? You just wonder what it would be like for God to use you in that kind of a way, right? right? So let's talk about Zechariah. And this is from Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you're, you're welcome to turn to them. Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 19. This is about Zechariah and the archangel Gabriel. Luke 1, verses 11 through 19. So Luke records, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Now, most, I think most of you know this, that when you talk about the temple... Uh, the temple of, uh, of Israel, that you have three primary parts. You have the outer court, which is where everybody can be. You have the holy place, which is where the religious leaders could go. Only if you were Jewish, you could go in that outer court. There were three pieces of furniture in that particular outer court. And the, 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 the primary piece in the, in the outer court, the, or the, I'm sorry, the holy place that led into the Holy of Holies, there was a there was an, uh, an incense, an altar of incense that was right in front of the curtains that led into the holy place. So it was, a, it was about this big. It was made out of gold and acacia wood. And so twice a day, um, uh, priests were, were uh, by lot, were appointed to go in and to change the incense so that there was this constant sweet-smelling incense that came off of that uh, that particular incense altar, right in front of the Holy of Holies that, high, that the high priest was only allowed to go into once a year, and that on the Day of Atonement, right? So, um, so this is a significant thing. And so Zechariah was appointed to go and to change the incense 
at this particular altar. And right there in front of the Holy of Holies, he encounters this angel Gabriel. And so this is what comes from it. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John, which means the anointed one. He will, he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be, a great, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will bring, will bring back, many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you to tell you this great news. So I'm just kind of wondering what kind of pedigree you would have to have for an archangel like Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, to be sent on a special mission just to you, to tell you about this phenomenal calling that he's given to you. It goes, so, and then, and then so, uh, because Zechariah, uh, you know, he's a little incredulous that, you know, he and his wife are advanced in years, and so he's a little incredulous that this is possible, and so, uh, um, and so he questions Gabriel about that, and Gabriel said, well, you know, look, uh, as, as a sign of this, uh, you're not going to be able to speak until the baby's born, and so, um, and so Zechariah comes out, and he is silent, and so, um, and so the, the story goes on from there, which I don't have time to go on into. But Zechariah is the father of John, John the Baptist. And John was selected by God to, let's say, soften up enemy territory. That's what he was supposed to do. Do you know how like you have uh, uh, opening bands when you go to a concert? And they have several opening bands to warm up the crowd, you know, to sort of get them in sync so that when the band that's really supposed to be the band, then the crowd's all warmed up and they are ready to go and they really go sort of ballistic, you know. That's John. John's the warm-up band. John is the one, that's right, John is the one that's supposed to get everybody sort of like uh, thinking about this Messiah who's going to come. And, and not only that, but he's the one that really starts uh, he's the one that really starts sort of calling into question the religious elite who have totally ruined anyone's understanding of the Old Testament and of the Mosaic Law. And I mean, you know, I mean, he, he really calls them to task. He, he says things like, you sons of snakes. Okay? Because you have, you have corrupted the Mosaic Law. And so uh, what began to happen then when John started to do those kinds of things, when Jesus came along and began to say the same kinds of things, then what was at one time, people would have never considered being critical of the Pharisees. Now they were warmed up. And Jesus then could offer a more, the, the pure form of what was intended behind the law of Moses. And then Jesus could offer himself 
instead of the corrupt version of what the Pharisees had the people of the day listening to. And so, uh, in the then and there, these were faithful parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Um, and so they 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 were uh, they were faithful in terms of they were faithful in terms of being good stewards of of their their son John. Uh, they helped to facilitate his calling, and that he was called to minister. And so uh, John played a pivotal role in um, in setting up the ministry of Jesus altogether. And so I wonder then, you know, in light of us, uh, you know, when you, have a, when you have a child, what, in what way are we faithful parents to our children so that our children carry on in terms of our faith, what we have learned and what is precious to us? Our children are ours, but we're stewards. I mean, Gabriel set a very definite boundary there in terms of the role that John was supposed to play. John was Elizabeth and Zechariah's son, but he was given to them as a gift to accomplish a very particular task in that day. Does, do any of us here think that when God gives us children that he doesn't have a particular task for them? Do we understand how really vital it is that we invest in our children in terms of their religious faith, their understanding who Jesus is and how to live that way? I mean, the willy-nilliness with which some of us raise our children independently and apart from the scriptures, apart from the need to know and have a meaningful and saving relationship with Jesus Christ. As if, as if our faith is something that we just fit in when it's convenient. Really? Can anyone here point to me anywhere in scriptures where God says, I will be your God, but only if it's convenient for you? There's no place in the scripture like that. In fact, he says that everything belongs to him and that he entrusts it to us and that he, we need him in order for us to handle what he has entrusted to us well. That we can't really do it on our own. So, uh, so Zechariah and Mary then are, are these faithful parents who have raised their son John and John, John performed a magnificent task and, uh, and he played a pivotal role uh, in the birth and the nativity and the ministry of Jesus himself because, Mary, because Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful parents mm -hmm. as we should be faithful parents, as we should understand that regardless of what kind of profession or vocation our children go into, as parents, we teach them, we challenge them, we instruct them, we guide them about what that means to do that Christianly. That's what it means. So now we come to Mary and the archangel Gabriel. And if you want to turn to Luke again, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38.
Luke 1, 26-38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, in a, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So for some of you who don't know this, what that means is that, is that in that culture, uh, adults arranged marriages for their children. So they basically told their children who they were going to marry. Sometimes I think that might not be a bad idea today. Um, and so, uh, and so, uh, so they, so as a as as a pledge or as betrothed, they were sort of almost married but not quite married. And there was a certain sense in which you could be unfaithful in that betrothedness. Okay, so uh, it was a it was a legally binding thing. So that was sort of the situation with, with Mary and Joseph. Now, verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You, you will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give, his name, give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now I just want to... I, I was sharing this the other night with uh, a group of people, um, and I, so I want you to understand why this is important. In no way did, Bo, did, did Mary, I'm sorry, in no way did Jesus share in the DNA of either Mary or Joseph. Mary was a host to the Son of God that the Holy Spirit planted in her womb. If he had been born uh, sharing the DNA of either Mary or Joseph, then he would have inherited what we know to be original sin. He would have inherited through the DNA our sinful nature and our broken nature. He would have inherited that. But the scriptures are very clear here that God planted Jesus independently of any kind of act between Mary and Joseph so that Jesus was planted in the womb of Mary independently as a pure, in fact, let me say this, there have only been two real, full, completely human beings that have ever existed, Adam and Eve and Jesus. You and I are compromised human beings because of the original sin that's in our life. We do not experience the fullness of what humanity is supposed to be because of the fall. We have been greatly compromised by the fall. So when somebody says, I'm only human, I know what they mean by that. Okay, But when, when, you, when it comes to being human, as God intended human to be, we are not that. And there have only been three who have ever been that way. And that would have been, that would have been Adam and Eve and Jesus. Because there was no original sin in their life.
Only truly human beings, truly human human beings. We are not fully human. We are compromised humans, as he intended us to be, exactly. In fact, as Lewis likes to say, you know, when we are restored fully in our humanity, he says this in um, uh, the book will come to me. but uh, what, he, what he says is, he says that uh, if you encounter a person who's been fully restored in the humanity, you might be tempted to worship them. They are so glorious. They are so beautiful. They are so astounding in their completeness, in their holiness, in their purity. We're just shadows. We're just a vapor. We're just a, we're, 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 we're just a residual element of what was once full and complete and pure humanity. So, going to the then and there application of Mary. So then, there and then, we have this young, unmarried, virginal woman. She was maybe 14 years of age. And, um, and she was pious. She was holy. She was faithful. I understand that back then, if you were 14, you were virtually an adult, as opposed to today, when you're 14, it's a little bit different. And these wonderful words, can you imagine the Gabriel angel, uh, the angel uh, Gabriel appearing before you and saying, you have found favor with God. Look, I'm just hoping I get in. (laughs) You know? Like, Like, I'm just, you know... Uh, I mean, you know, my more less than human moments, I'm thinking, because I, I believe by faith that I, because I love Jesus, that, that I've been adopted and therefore uh, uh, I have eternal life in Christ. I, I get that. But, but when I really take inventory of, of my life and who I am and what I'm capable of and what I'm not capable of doing, what I don't do, I don't feel very worthy sometimes. And I certainly don't ever expect to hear the words, you have found favor with God. So here's this person, Mary, this 14-year-old girl. And the archangel, sent on a special mission from God, who stands in the presence of God, comes to her and says, you have found favor. She's betrothed to this guy named Joseph. We don't know. He probably could have been a, a fair amount older than what she was. And she's told this incredible information that she's going to be the birth mother of the Son of God, and because she was, let me just say this, because she found favor with God, you have to assume then that she was pretty familiar with the Old Testament and the great Old Testament prophecies and how that, that God had planned from Genesis 3.15 all along through the Abrahamic covenant, through the Davidic covenant, through the Mosaic covenant, through all those great covenants that God had been planning all along to provide a Messiah, not just for Israel, but a Messiah for the entire world. And guess what? She's the mother who's going to deliver this person? Then the next thing she, probably, she may have thought was this. Let's see, I'm this 14-year-old girl. I'm betrothed to my husband, Joseph, and I'm going to be walking around here looking pregnant, but I'm not married. What am I going to do about that? Well, her response was this. And by the way, 
in that particular culture, according to Mosaic law, if you were unfaithful, if you were a fornicator or an adulterer, and there's a difference between those two things, a fornicator is a person who has sex before marriage, an adulterer is a, has a person who has extramarital sex while being in a marriage. And so, um, so, so she is thinking, as she has to be thinking, uh, people are going to perceive me as a fornicator, a person who betrayed my, my, my vow and my trust to Joseph, and that could mean that some people would want to punish me. According to the Mosaic law, that meant stoning. And so, um, but that's not what her response was. Her response set was this, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. Now the, you know, the social stigma there was like suffocating. And yet, this 14-year-old girl responds with these words, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. So how might that apply to us in the here and now? The scriptures tell us that the pure in heart shall see God. I mean... Is it that hard of a task for any one of us, any one of us to want to wish that we had the pure heart of a 14-year-old girl in Palestine 2,000 years ago? Is that a great task? When the Lord calls us to do something difficult, and I think that the Lord always has a plan to call us to something difficult, <coughs> because the world is a difficult place, and people are difficult, and people, uh, uh, um, uh, people are ill, they are sick, they make stupid choices and decisions, and we run in the face of that all the time. And sometimes that requires something significant of us. And when we encounter those people who are going to require something difficult from us, and we hear the Lord speak, He ambushes us or He hijacks us and He says, I want you to do this thing with these people or that person. I want you to do that. Is our response, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. Does this make sense to us? Amen. I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. And finally... You know, Mary, uh, you know, Jesus was born through Mary, B-O-R-N. But today, you and I are responsible for the bearing or having Jesus born in our lives, B-O-R-N-E. In that way, we are to be Mary. She may have given birth to him. He was born through her. But Jesus is also to be born, carried through us. It's the same thing. Are we willing to be obedient to God sacrificially in order that Christ may be born, B-R-N-E, in our lives for the world in which we live. 
So those are the first two characters that I want to talk about, uh, that, that I talked about, Zechariah and Mary. And as you can see, their lives have a, a unique significance to them. And that significance was such that it, it, it continues to live 2,000 years later. You can see that in both of their lives, there are examples for us to learn from and to employ and to make a part of our life as well. <coughs> that Zechariah lived the kind of life where he was willing to allow God to use the most sacred thing, the most important thing, his son, to prepare for the coming of Jesus. That Mary was allowed to, ha that Mary was willing and open to have her life to, to be used in such a way that the Son of God could be born in her life in order that the world might, in, might encounter a living, fully human, fully God person named Jesus Christ who would bear our sins and reconcile us to God. So next week then, I'll be talking about three other characters uh, in the same kind of a way, in asking the same kinds of questions. And so I hope that this Advent season, you can apply these kinds of things to your life as I will try to apply them to mine. And then maybe these people and their lives take on an added significance that will teach and shape and change us in a way that gives glory and honor to God in the same kind of way that they sought to give order to give glory and honor to God themselves.